You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity to learn our faith together. Uh, Bishop Sheen continues to give us our catechism lesson each and every week, and uh, I know we're coming close to the end here, uh, but again, there's still lots of great talks to be heard. Uh, So Bishop Sheen will be focusing on children this week, and so uh, we're going to share a reflection from his television series, Life is Worth Living, And the title of the program is Children, a Burden or Joy. And I think sometimes we hear that, oh, too many times. Are children a burden or a joy? Uh, Sometimes they can be both, but but we'd like to think the latter, that they're more joy than anything else. And uh, we'll be also sharing lesson number 39 from the Catechism Lessons, uh, the 50-part series. And this lesson is entitled Birth Prevention. And so we've heard that before, too, but it's nice to hear it from Bishop Sheen. Uh, Again, the Church's uh, teaching on birth control, and uh, again, he'll give us a great deal of wisdom. And so let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy now this uh, recording from the 1950s from Bishop Sheen's television series, Your Life is Worth Living, and it's entitled Children, Burden, or Joy. Friends, some time ago we received a letter from New England from a mother who named a baby after me. Fulton is now four years of age. and One day the mother calls him, shouts for him, searches for him, cannot find him, nor the little baby sister aged one. Finally the mother goes to the garret and she finds the little boy dressed up with his coat and hat on, suitcase in his hand. And she said, where are you going, Fulton? He said, I'm going to New York to see Bishop Sheen. I was named after him. And the mother said, what have you got in the suitcase? He said, my little sister, she's going too. (laughs) 
And that set me thinking about sometimes how much trouble children can be. So I might tell you at the beginning how much trouble they are and then say something really good about them. They are, of course, a great trouble. I know one mother who used to lock herself in the playpen. It was the only way that she could ever get peace. <laughs> and I also know of a wife who had an alcoholic husband or one who had a tendency to be alcoholic. And she was always amused at night to see her husband get up and go for a bottle and never take a drink himself. <laughs> and then it seemed he was always so ready and so prepared to serve someone else a drink. <laughs> then in addition to that, we notice very often at baptisms how awkward men are when they hold a baby. Did you ever watch a man when a woman says to him, hold the baby, Bill? They never know what to do with a baby. A man's hands were never meant to hold a child. Somehow or other, their hands are like cranes. A child is always in transit. They pick the child up here and they wonder where they can put the child down. And they have various ways of holding a child. Uh, some hold children like cocktail shakers. To have and to hold. <laughs> and then there are others who hold children like footballs. <laughs> and they're always looking for an opening to get rid of the ball, too. <laughs> uh, then there are, uh, there are others who always regard this little bundle as a kind of a mystery. They never know which end, where is it, if something was in here <laughs> when it was handed to me. And in addition to that, of course, the crying of children. What a trial that is. Ever notice how their eyes get smaller, their little nose has almost become a button, but the mouth. <laughs> that is really tremendous. And now, when I talk about crying, I am on a very sensitive point here. Because I believe that I was the original and only Prince of Wales. hate to meet relatives and friends who knew me as a baby because tradition has it and tradition must be respected. Tradition has it that I cried for the first three years of my mortal life. Honestly. That's how I got the name of Fulton. I was baptized Peter. And I cried and cried so much I was a constant burden to my father and mother and to get a little relief they used to take me to my grandparents whose name was Fulton. So I got to be known as Fulton's baby, and that's where I got the name. <laughs> now, those are some of the bad things about children. Perhaps it might be well now to say something really good about them. And I can think immediately of three good things to say about them. First of all, children rescue love from boredom. And secondly, children are the resurrection of beauty 
and strength. And thirdly, children reveal the mystery of fatherhood and motherhood. First of all, children rescue love from boredom. Love can be boring. It can produce ennui. It might happen very well that when there are only two who love, that love could be something like this, nothing but an exchange of egotisms from one to the other. Duality in love can be death. That is why in the romance of love, lovers always speak of our love, as if there was something outside of the sum of the love of both of them. They will even speak of it as something bigger than ourselves, something that holds them together. That is God. For those who are blessed with children, it is the children. So that there is here a veritable communion of love between father, mother, and child. And that is one of the purposes of children. How dull, for example, life would be if a, a musician were always picking up a violin and a bow and never producing a melody. Or a sculptor were always picking up a chisel and applying it to marble and never creating a statue. Or a poet put pen to paper, never wrote a musical line. I wonder if the farmer would not go mad. If a short time after he had planted the seed in the springtime, if he immediately dug it up and never waited for the fruits and for the harvest. There's no woman that ever goes into a garden, and just as soon as the buds begin to appear in the spring, cuts off the buds. Love by its very nature wants to bear some fruit. Thus it saves itself from that duality, and comes near to that trinity which is the very essence of love, even the love of God himself. For well, that is triune. And those who deliberately frustrate it have been written about by the poet Davidson, who wrote, Your cruelest pain is when you think of all the honeyed treasure of your body spent, and no new life to show. Is then you understand how people lift their hands against themselves? and taste the bitterest of all punishment of those whom pleasure isolates. When darkness, silence, and the sleeping world give vision scope, you lie awake 
see the pale, sad faces of the little ones who should have been your children. As they pressed their cheeks against your window pane, looking in with piteous wonder, homeless, famished babes, denied your wombs and bosoms. But when love escapes this mere exchange of egotisms like two sailors shipwrecked on an island who supported themselves by taking in one another's washing, <laughs> then love is rescued from that dullness and tiresomeness because life has found its meaning. And love is then discovered to be not like that of the serpent that always lives in exactly the same plane. But love then begins to be like the bird that has an ascension of love and begins to taste its sweetest moments in the higher moments of flight. Such is the first purpose of children. And the second is the resurrection of beauty and strength. In our time, it is very common for people to think that beauty and strength can be continued in their own generation. God never intended that they should. After all, beauty and strength were given to us to serve as purposes of allurement. And that is why they are most manifest only at that age when the family ought to begin to be founded. Strength is not an enduring quality. And neither is beauty. In fact, there isn't anything that is perhaps quite as repellent to good sense as to see men grow old and yet try to appear as they were sophomores in college with their crew cuts. <laughs> Manifesting an immaturity and attempting to preserve that strength which is already gone. And so it is with, with women attempting to keep a beauty of the 19 and 20, which is impossible to keep, no matter how they advertise, even this way, the solution of the problem has not been found. There was once an advertisement in a beauty parlor that read, Water rusts pipes. What will it do to your face? <laughs> And even after marriage, the man who was thought to be so strong, particularly when he made end runs in a football game on Saturday afternoon, is asked to take down the screens for the winter. And he says, what are you, a cripple? <laughs> and then the beauty and the baby talk that he once thought was so cute, well, that begins to get on his nerves. Now, the answer is not to be cynical, because God intended that beauty and strength should be preserved, but not in our generation, but in another. And hence, when the boy is born, the father begins to revive in all of his strength. 
Men in the language of the poet Virgil, from our heaven descends a worthier race of men. And then as the daughters are born, the wife begins to revive in all of her beauty. And thus, beauty and strength are carried on to another generation. And the chalice of father and mother are so overflowing now with their mutual love that they can look to another generation and see themselves strong and see themselves beautiful and those who are begotten of their love. And then all of the children become as so many beads in a rosary of love and chaining them. And that sweetest of all slavery, which is the love of a family and the happiness of a home. I might make one exception about people who are no longer 18, primping and dressing up. I read the other day in a Detroit paper about a woman, 86 years of age, who every Tuesday night primps her hair, puts on her best dress, and she says, I'm going to listen to Bishop Sheen. <laughs> God love you, wherever you are. Then, of course, fathers have worries when the boys are strong. Just think of the worries of a father who has only girls. <laughs> and here is a magnificent poem by Ogden Nash. He has entitled it, A Song to be Sung by the Father of Infant Female Children. <laughs> My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. Contrarywise, my blood runs cold when little boys go by. For little boys, as little boys, no special hate I carry. But now and then they grow to men, and when they do, they marry. No matter how they tarry, eventually they marry. And swine among the pearls, they marry little girl. <laughs> oh, somewhere, somewhere an infant plays with parents who feed and clothe him. Their lips are sticky with pride and praise, but I've begun to loathe him. Yes, I loathe with a loathing shameless the child who to me is nameless. The bachelor child in his carriage gives never a thought to marriage, but a person can hardly say knife before he will hunt him a wife. <laughs> I never see an infant male sleeping in the sun without I turn a trifle pale and think, is he the one? <laughs> oh, first he'll want to crop his curls, and then he'll want a pony, and then he'll think of pretty girls and holy matrimony. <laughs> He'll put away his pony and sigh for matrimony. A cat without a mouse is he without a spouse. Oh, somewhere he bubbles bubbles of milk and quietly sucks his thumbs. His cheeks are roses painted on silk and his teeth are tucked in his gums. But alas, the teeth will begin to grow and the bubbles will cease to bubble. Given a score of years or so, the roses will turn to stubble. <laughs> He'll sell a bond or he'll write a book and his eyes will get that acquisitive look and raging and ravenous for the kill, he'll boldly ask for the hand of Jill. 
the infant whose middle is diapered still will want to marry my daughter, Jill. <laughs> oh, sweet be his slumber and moist his middle. My dreams, I fear, are infanticidal. A fig for embryo loin grins. I'll open all his safety pins. I'll pepper his powder, salt his bottle, give him readings from Aristotle. <laughs> I love that line. Stand for his spinach. Stand for his spinach I'll gladly bring and Tabasco sauce for his teething ring and an elegant, elegant alligator to play with in his perambulator. Then perhaps he'll struggle through fire and water to marry someone else's daughter. <laughs> All that applause belongs to Ogden Nash. And finally, a child reveals the mystery of fatherhood and motherhood. Love is never satisfying when one feels that he has hit bottom. When there are no veils to be lifted, no doors to be opened, no new pages to be turned. It is then that some look for substitutes. And in vain does one think that by picking up a series of violins, he will produce the melody of life. Rather, the great joy of life comes from deepening a mystery. And a child deepens a mystery. First of all, a child makes a husband a father. And a fatherhood is a refraction of divine paternity. From whom all fatherhood and all blessings come, child that is taught to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, is also the one who understands my father who is in his home. And then, too, the child makes the wife a mother. A woman is truly a mother when she brings to creation the gifts of God. The word of a woman is fiat, submission, the communication of life. Man cooperates with nature, but a woman cooperates with God. And it is the child that makes her a mother. And then, when the child makes both, he produces fathercraft and mothercraft. Oh, you parents, you realize that your children are given to you with so much plastic clay. You are to mold them with your own hands. In juvenile court, you say, I can do nothing with my child, but did you ever do anything for him? And every child is made a crown, is made for that child in heaven. And woe betide the parents. There's not a head for that crown. You remember the story of Leonardo da Vinci, who painted once the Christ child, and years later, the Last Supper? He searched for someone who would represent Judas, and lo and behold, it turned out to be the one who had posed for the Christ child. Something can happen to children. There's not the art and the science, the fathercraft and mothercraft in the home. And then the parents will bring them to be generated anew, to be christened, so that they are not only their children, they become the children of God. And we'll teach them about 
their guardian angel. You will teach them to say, Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here, ever this day be at my side, to light, to guard, to rule and guide. I'm not the only one who has an angel. I'm the only one who admits it publicly. <laughs> and you may wonder now, why should I talk on children, I who have forfeited all of this by my life? Well, because it is also possible to impress the images of mind and spirit upon other people, as well as the image of a body. And it is my life to try to impress the image of a spirit upon others, to beget them in God. And I wish that I had thousands and thousands of more children in God. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at one 866 357 4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. Dot com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you enjoyed that reflection from Bishop Sheen, uh, entitled Children, a Burden or Joy. And I love how Bishop Sheen ended that broadcast, wishing that he had tons of spiritual children in Christ. And, uh, you know, it kind of uh, reminds me of the topic of spiritual motherhood and spiritual fatherhood, and that many of us become spiritual mothers and fathers to so many children. But especially, I think, of us spiritually adopting priests and seminarians. Uh, what a great blessing it is to... Uh, to take that as uh, a great, uh, it's almost, I'd like to say, a divine mandate uh, to pray for priests and seminarians, to uh, ask the good Lord to send laborers into the harvest to help us. Uh, to, of course, we need shepherds. So uh, there is a great benefit to spiritually adopting uh, not only priests but seminarians. And so maybe that's something that you may uh, want to do in the near future if you haven't done so already. So let us now get back to our catechism lesson with Bishop Sheen. 
And we're on to lesson number 39 of a 50-part series. And today's reflection is entitled Birth Prevention. And so Bishop Sheen will give us some clarity with charity on the Church's teaching on this matter. So please sit back and relax and enjoy uh, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Peace be to you. The subject about to be discussed is birth control. The words are not very proper, first of all, because those who believe in it actually believe neither in birth nor in control. Therefore, we shall never use the words again. They are finished. We propose first to answer one or two objections or false philosophies about the subject of the purpose of marriage. The first is this. Married couples will often say, we cannot afford more children. Therefore, we have a right to fumble with the levers of life. Those who make a statement of this particular kind probably never think of the terrible principle that they are enunciating. Namely, the primacy of the economic over the human. Now, just suppose one put that into practice in other walks of life. Suppose a family had five children, but they had enough money to buy only four hats. Do you think that they would be permitted or should be permitted to cut off the head of a child in order to bring the economic to the level of the human? and the human to the level of the economic? Suppose a husband says that he can no longer support, it, support his wife. Ought he be entitled to shoot her? What is forgotten here in giving the primacy to the economic is that we receive blessings as we put ourselves in the area of God's love. A waif on the street does not receive food, clothing, and shelter as a child in a family, because that wafers outside of the environment of love. So too, to the extent that we put ourselves outside of the environment and the area of God's love, we exclude those divine assistances that would otherwise come to us. Those who put the primacy upon the economic are really not interested in saving or earning. They are interested in spending. And it is that which dictates the frustration of life. There's a brood of idle passions and a desire for more credit and more clothes and more selfishness, which dictates their philosophy. They believe that they are free, therefore, as we said, to manipulate life apart from God's laws because it is only Catholics that are bound by the laws of fruitfulness of marriage. So they say that Catholics are opposed to any frustration of human life and marriage. That indeed is true. But 
It must be remembered that those who are not Catholics are no more free to violate God's natural laws than anyone else. It just happens that the Church is defending here a natural law. And because we are about the only ones who are defending it, there are some who are led into the error of believing that the opposition to the frustration of love is purely and solely a Catholic doctrine. We could conceivably reach a stage in the world where Catholics alone might believe that two and two make four and that grass is green in the springtime. These are principles that belong to the natural order. So is the principle that marriage is destined to be fruitful. Just suppose that a vast majority of people went around with their eyes blindfolded and their ears plugged up. We would very soon have a papal encyclical which would oppose that. And the church would say, it is not right to blindfold your eyes or to plug up your ears. Does not reason, does not the natural law tell you that the eyes were made for seeing and that the ears were made for hearing? Therefore, you must allow these organs to work out the function for which God created them. There indeed would be many that would say, Oh, the Catholic Church is opposed to eye control. The Catholic Church is in opposition to ear control. Certainly. Because reason tells us why these organs were made. So too a husband and wife were made in a certain way, and God created male and female in a certain way. And therefore these organs are to be permitted to function according to the way that God made them. What are we going to make this world? A universe in which we pick up violins and bows and never produce music? A universe in which sculptors pick up chisels and never touch them to marble in order to create a statue? Are we going to have trees blooming but never any fruit? Signposts that lead nowhere? Is life and love to be reduced to a kind of an epidermic content and contact without any fruit or purpose? But that is all negative. We must always take the positive position. And on this particular subject of the fruit of love, we will describe and enunciate two sublime teachings. One, love in marriage creates the deepest kind of unity. And secondly, that deep unity of love, by its very nature, tends to an incarnation. We said that love in marriage creates the deepest kind of unity of love. We might also say, by the way, that this particular point that we are to develop proves also that there is not to be a union of sexes outside of marriage. Have you ever noticed 
that Scripture nowhere speaks of marriage in terms of sex, but always in terms of knowledge. Why is that? Well, first of all, let us prove the point. The book of Genesis, for example, said, And now Adam had knowledge of his wife Eve, and she conceived. Had knowledge of her. When the angel Gabriel announced to the Blessed Mother that she was chosen to be the mother of our Blessed Lord, she asked, How can this be since I have no knowledge of man? Notice here that there was no question of the ignorance of conception, but of some deeper mystery. So St. Paul says, Husbands, possess your wives in knowledge. Why is marriage spoken of in, as knowledge? Well, for this reason, because one of the closest forms of unity in the natural order is that which comes from knowledge. You look out on a flower or a tree. You know these things. They enter into your mind. There begins to be a unity, and the closest kind of unity in the natural order between the knower and the thing which is known. You cannot think of anything more close than the union of your mind and that which you know. So sacred scripture compares marriage to knowledge because marriage produces a unity. And it demands fidelity. When a man knows a woman, there is a unity that is created between the two that is light to the union of the mind and that which is known. That unity is so close, so intimate, that it may be known may be used rather over and over again, but it never again may be reacquired. They are two in one flesh. From that point on, there is nothing that happens to a woman that does not happen to the man that made her a woman. He made her a woman. She made him a man. And just as you are always indebted to the one that gave you the knowledge about Shakespeare, namely your alma mater, so too one is always indebted to the one that created that unity between the two. The resulting psychic changes indeed are great but they're great also in the order of the body. The woman can never again return to virginity. The man can never again return to ignorance. Something has happened to make them one, and from that oneness comes fidelity. 
so long as either has a body. They can never put themselves back into a state that they had before. Therefore, it is not just an experience. It is a bond that continues to exist as long as life itself. Now, in married couples, this union is very deep. And that brings us now to our second point, that all love tends toward an incarnation. Thus far, we have spoken of the love of husband and wife creating a deep bond of unity, unity of love. Now we want to show that this love naturally tends to diffuse itself. Everything that is good diffuses itself. The sun is good. It diffuses itself in light and heat. The flower is good. It diffuses itself in perfume. Animals are good. They diffuse themselves in the generation of their kind. Man is good. His mind is good. His mind diffuses itself in thoughts. God is good. God diffuses himself not only in creation, but from all eternity. God has an eternal son. The source of all generation is in God. Let not, therefore, husband and wife be told that procreation is an imitation of the beasts of the field. It is rather an imitation of God who from all eternity has an eternal son, the son to whom he can say, in the agelessness of eternity, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. This day without beginning nor end. Now this power of generation, which is eternal in the Godhead, is communicated to man's mind. It is communicated to the body of a husband and to the body of a wife. As God himself said, shall I that make others bring forth children myself be barren? Therefore, the power of generation is not a push from below. It is a gift from above. Not only do we find, therefore, that the motive power of begetting children is in the Trinity, but it is also in the Incarnation, because all love ends in an Incarnation. Even God's. God so loved man that he became enfleshed in the human nature. What is our blessed Lord but God's love incarnate? God's love walking this earth in the form and habit of man. You see how beautiful love is? 
If one could give a definition of love in the light of the Trinity and the Incarnation, it might be that love is mutual self-giving which ends in self-recovery. It is mutual self-giving because no one is good unless he gives. But if love were just mutual self-giving, it could end in exhaustion. Therefore, love is a mutual self-giving which ends in self-recovery. In the Trinity, there's the giving of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Holy Spirit. And there is the self-recovery in the sense that the Trinity, I mean the Holy Spirit, is the bond which unites Father and Son. The unity of love. And so too it is with husband and wife. There is a mutual self-giving of husband and wife and that mutual self-giving ends in self-recovery, which is the child. The thrill of a farmer as he sees a grain of wheat he planted coming into life. And the joy at seeing, seeing a geranium bud in a tin full of earth on a tenement windowsill. The ecstasy of a saint at seeing a sinner dead in sin responding to prayer and beginning to live in Christ. All of these are earth's witnesses to the inherent happiness that comes to anyone who sees life springing and sprouting or aborning. Love does not mean just the joy to possess. It means to the will to see a new life born out of that love. To see someone created in one's own image and likeness. And what is the child then? Well, the child becomes the bond of union between the husband and wife. And the child unveils fatherhood in the husband and motherhood. There's a new relationship created. Not only did the father make her, his wife, a mother, but the child made him a father. You see, love becomes a kind of an ascension from the sense plane and goes back again to God. The children are almost like beads in a rosary, binding together the love of husband and wife. Love always demands something unrevealed. It flourishes only in mystery. No one ever wants to hear a singer hit her highest note, nor to hear an orator tarry passion to tatters, to very rags, one never wants to see the infinite denied or life's urge still or a passion glutted. One wants to see an unfolding and enrichment and enfleshment of love. And that is what happens in marriage when there are children. One distinct mystery after another is unfolded. There was the unfolding of the mystery of the body. And then there begins to be the unfolding of a new mystery, the mystery of motherhood and the mystery of fatherhood. 
And then when the children have to be trained, there comes the mystery of father craft and mother craft. New areas of exploration are opened up. And there's never dullness. Indeed, a husband after a time may become dull to the wife and the wife to the husband. But when the children are born, the first boy, well, he begins to be the new life of the husband all over again. The wife becomes very pretty once more. And the daughter. And as each child is born, they bind together husband and wife, as a reflection of the binding love of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. And then because each child has a soul to save, then there becomes an awakening of sweet responsibility in the father and the mother. As uh, Khalil Gibran wrote, When he spoke of children, he said, Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you, for life goes not backward nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite. Let your end bending in the archer's hand be for gladness. For even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. And that is the story of life. God sets up the target. You are the bow, and your children are the arrows. They have a messianic mission in your life. They represent the conquest of love over the ego. They symbolize the defeat of your selfishness. They represent the victory of charity. Every child begets sacrifice, tends toward an incarnation, and every child becomes for you a pledge of your own salvation. And how happy you will be on Judgment Day, when God says to you, your love has borne fruit. And if God did not bless you with children, 
in any case, you can always rejoice that you never buried love in a napkin. You sent it back again to God from which it came. Hello, Radio Maria family. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen was a master communicator with an unforgettable voice and ability to communicate the message of Christianity to all peoples. He was a Catholic priest with a tremendous knowledge of Catholic theology. We've been blessed to share his recordings through the generosity of our good friends at FultonSheen.com. I would ask you to visit their website to download hundreds of MP3 talks by the great Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Please visit them at www.fultonsheen.com and there you can enjoy the voice of the Master Preacher of Christ who touched the lives of millions worldwide with his warmth, wisdom, and humor. So please visit fultonsheen.com to start enjoying your own collection of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen recordings. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you again for joining me for another hour of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I thought I'd end our program with a little prayer asking for a spiritual favor through the intercession of Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. So I'd ask you to please join me, and there'll be just a a small moment of silence where you can add your own intention and, of course, uh, love praying for favors. And so, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you alone grant us every blessing in heaven and on earth through the redemptive mission of your divine Son, Jesus Christ, and by the working of the Holy Spirit. If it be according to your will, glorify your servant, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, by granting the favor I now request through his prayerful intercession. And we make this prayer confidently through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Rita Maria family, thank you again for joining me. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the good Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Here on Radio Maria Canada.